Welcome to Just Participation, a student-led podcast about democracy that centers on the experiences, knowledges, and creativities of people working to enact change around the world. We're recording from the traditional territories of the Mississauga and Haudenosaunee nations, and within the lands protected by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. The topic of today's episode will be the first in a series that takes an in-depth look at technology and democracy. Technology holds the promise of expanding and strengthening the quality of democracy, but also of reproducing systematic inequalities and power imbalances within states and between them. Our first guest, who can only safely be identified as Cuz, grounds this episode on technology and democracy by drawing attention to the historical and continued weaponization of modern technologies against indigenous communities by settler colonial governments. Cuz also helps us in recognizing the creative ways technologies are utilized by indigenous movements to fight for change and to counter the attempts by police and governments to censor or disrupt their communications. Cuz, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, my uh, Indian name is Lustig. I'm um, uh, Lustig Youngest. Uh, my name is, uh, he's looking for, looking for something or looking for it. I'm of the Bear Clan and uh, Oneida Nation, Oneida Nation Bear Clan. I live in the Niagara region, so I have the benefit of uh, getting to play in both the American and the Canadian world, or get the full American-Canadian experience, sort of say. And you're involved a lot in the Land Back Lane and, and some of the other sort of uh, shows of resistance, mm-hmm. we'll say. If you want to talk a little bit about that and what your experience has been like over the last couple of years, and uh, well, over the last couple of years, I think we've seen I think we've seen some dramatic steps with uh, Landback Lane from last year. Mm-hmm. But uh, unfortunately, Landback Lane is the first time that we've actually gotten some support from uh, the colonial, we'll say, the colonial settler state. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've been we've last year was. Mark thirty years that I've been I've been involved with uh, some sort of action or whatnot, and I'm forty years old. Yeah. So that gives you an idea. Three quarters of my life. Yeah, been around, been around. Whether it's uh, protesting what's going on with Oka, trying to keep our rights at the borders, okay, uh, keep yeah. trying to keep our rights with uh, border crossing, and uh, the things that go along with that. Uh, the, the fact that the the international separates our, our sovereign nation. And you can see some of that with the uh, with the with, with the way the settler laws work. So you know, there's a there's a line that goes through the Niagara River that's imaginary that splits American citizens and Canadian citizens. But due to treaties, that that line doesn't exist to the Haudenosaunee because we resided on both sides of that border. But with with uh, the way things are going with terrorism and, and uh, other other issues in the world, they uh, they they trample some of our rights in, in trying to protect themselves. So we've been we've been dealing with this for the better part of thirty years and you know, unfortunately it's the fight my grandparents had, their grandparents and, you know, and that gets us into residential schooling and, you know, I mean I, my my mother was the, the first one to the first generation not to attend uh, to write the attend residential school full-time. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Did they do any sort of day schools on your reserve? Because that's what they did on, yeah. on my school, yeah. on my reserve, that, right? That, that happened on, uh, on the Oneida Res. And my grandmother had a house built that she, her, her dream house. 
they lived there for six months, and that's when 60 Scoop started happening. Oh, man. So my grandmother packed everybody up, and they moved to Buffalo, New York. Well, what's the 60 so, Scoop there? Just explain a little bit to our listeners there. Uh, the 60 Scoop is uh, where the RCMP and OPP physically went out of reserves with black paddy wagons, and they would actually scoop kids that were in the yard playing, or if your kid was outside playing, the, the, the black car could pull up and throw you inside. You're on your way to boarding school. You'd be, you'd be lucky if your parents were told that you were going. So my, my mother told me stories about my grandmother telling her, growing up, if you see a black paddy wagon, run. Don't stop, just run. So, you know, like these are these are things that have been in our community for years. You know, it kinda of explains why even now nowadays most uh most native people are a little gun shy when it comes to cops. It's almost first nature to run because that's what we've what's what's instinctual due to residential schooling. I kinda wanna sort of get your general thoughts on on democracy and particularly the context of settler colonial projects in the United States and Canada. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of democracy. I think everybody's voice matters. Even uh, traditionally, the way Odoshoni ran their their longhouses, it, it was the, the the chief and the grandmothers weren't necessarily the ones with the power. They were just the voice that all voices went through. So you know, like your usually your chief was the last to eat type of thing. You mm. know, so it's it's uh, our ways are very different than theirs. That being said, uh, Benjamin Franklin stayed with the Oneida for six months before he went back to Philadelphia and penned the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. So those are teachings that they got directly from us about what a free man was. Because you had to keep in mind at that time, they were coming from uh, a monarch system, you know? So they were, they were they, their thing was taxation mm-hmm. without representation. So... Really, what they did was they took our way of life, our great law, and applied it to themselves so that they could they could uh, become free men. And in the process, they 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 kept it for themselves and cut everybody else out. So in 1982 or something, I think it was, the Congress actually in the in the in the House of Congress that in the state they they actually. Uh, recognize that their their system is based off the Adonishoni Great Law. Mm. So even with the American symbolism, you can see Adonishoni symbolism all over it. Uh, the arrows in the eagle's hand, the olive branch in the opposite hand, that represents war and peace, unity, and all that. And it being the eagle, the eagle was the most revered bird in our, in our culture. Mm-hmm. So as far as their system goes, I... I I love their system because their system is based off of ours, right? Mm-hmm. What I don't love about it is they found a way to pervert it, and it doesn't work for the people. And the only thing that, that works over there is, is uh, money. Money is your voice. Well, you're, you're not wrong about that. I definitely agree that money would be your voice, and that's... Uh, that's, where, that's where the democracy is, 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 is starting to fail, is that they're only listening to the money. They're not listening to the people and the, the things that matter. So jumping yeah. off of that, because uh, what are your concerns or what concerns do you have about the growing relationship between technology and democracy? Because that's really the meat of the potatoes here we're getting to. Uh, well, you know. 
I think, I think technology, technology is a great way for getting uh, the information out there. But as we've seen with the last four years of the Trump era, you can have that misinformation and that that, uh, that willful thorn in the side that just wants to see uh, uh, mayhem, we'll say. Because there's, 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 you know, I mean, and not to pick out anybody that's backstage or not backstage. I'm just going to use this topic in general. It became a politicized topic, so now when people look at it or they discuss it, they're they're looking at it from whatever political standpoint they have. When in actuality, we should be looking at it from a scientific standpoint. Yeah, I, that's really yeah. all that matters, you know. And that that, yeah. that I would say is. Uh, partially social media to blame because it, it allows that misinformation to go, you know, so it could be the, the, the internet is a great tool that can be used for good and for evil. So, I mean, I don't know, uh, in the long run, I don't know how to, to disband the, the, uh, errant lies that are out there, but ultimately I think that, uh, Anybody with a capable of critical thinking can can look past those uh, the misleading information that's out there. Yeah, I think if you're curious, absolutely. And so I guess you kind of you kind of led right into, you know, the next question I had for you, which is what are your concerns about digital technologies and social media? And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, right, is it can be used for good, but it can also be, you know, as we've seen with the Trump era and, you know, the misinformation fake news era, it can be used for quote-unquote bad purposes or, you know, maybe less sincere purposes, right? So, um, what do you think about the experience of distribution of technologies in North America, right? And that's something that I think is an important question because if you look at the way technology was sort of leveraged against uh, indigenous people in, in general, it, it was uh, it created a, an imbalance in power, and I feel like uh, well, it doesn't matter what I feel like, but in terms of the question, um, what do you think uh, about the distribution of technology and how this you know has it been equitable? How does this affect democracy, sort of thing? Uh, I think that's a two prong question because in the state there. They had that, that, that thing for a little while while Obama was in, in, uh, in office that they were giving out cell phones to the poor. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, they weren't the greatest of cell phones, but they, they worked. And ultimately, that communication is, is, is the key to, to keeping impoverished areas out of poverty or at least helping them to remove themselves from poverty. Uh, that's in the States, though. So, and even that, that, uh, the technology divide is still quite huge. Uh, for instance, my kids go to school in, uh, in a decent area in the south towns of western New York, and the resources that they have uh, far outweigh the resources that the inner city has. You know, and really, of the two school districts that can afford to have services and not have services, the services should be in the city, not necessarily in the suburbs. You know, like if we want, if we want our country as a whole, both sides of the border, uh, to 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 truly uh, be standing strong for generations to come, then we need that education to be uh, offered across the board to to be impoverished and affluent areas. So, uh, 
long story short, I guess there's there's the states is uh, technology more advanced more than we are over in Canada. Uh, the divide in Canada is quite large because leaving on reservations today, I'm not sure how it is on your reservation, but Six Nations, one of the largest reservations in North America, they still don't have uh, they don't have a consistent uh, Wi-Fi. What type of barriers do you see accessing new technologies in you know within um, your community uh, specifically, like? criticisms of technology or any other criticisms you hear of, um, you know, things in the community that uh, sort of maybe moving too quickly or, or any sort of gripes within your community? I mean, I've heard some in my community, but those are mainly from, excuse me, elders and things like that. And I mean, Yeah, I think, uh, I think one of the things that, that uh, like, for instance, I know that Native people in general are pushing more for the green technologies. And there's, there's information about these windows. You know, I mean, I get there that yes, there's you die running into the windows, but they, they, there is it enough to warrant what we're losing due to coal power? You know what I mean? Coal mm-hmm. power is, is is obviously destroying huge swaths of habitat. You so know, you don't really have necessarily a criticism of technology per se, more a criticism of. Um, how it's used and yeah, I would say yeah, exactly. More how it's used. Uh, we have the. I I think you'd, I'd be safe to say that we or have not the used. Yeah, yeah, we have the abilities to to supply people with uh with energy at a cheaper rate that's not so detrimental to, to the earth, mm-hmm. and we're choosing to still go after dirty ways of doing things. So we've we've advanced technology technologically uh, quite a way, but mechanically we're still in the 19th century. What is the role of online participation in digital democracy for enhancing consultation and self governance in First Nation communities? Uh, well, I think we we we've discovered over this last year with COVID that this uh, online this ability to meet online in these online uh, chat rooms or like Vivo or Duo or whatever there is, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, these platforms have allowed us to to be in the same room even though we're great distances apart. Mm-hmm. So for Native communities especially, being that they're geographically, we are so separate, uh, it, that, that I think will, will, will help us communicate and work together as uh, separate nation entities, you know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so it allows us to 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 communicate between communities. Uh, I think that the, the the other thing that it allows with uh, social media is that it allows those communities to interact in a social platform. Uh, I I myself uh, not necessarily uh, active on Facebook uh, with my own stuff, but there's always some kind of event going on or mm-hmm. some kind of uh, acknowledgement. And we we between our, our communities, we we share these things on our social platform, therefore allowing our other networks to see each other. And then from that, you know, like I say, now you have amongst those people, you have community organizers who, who are going to be in these meetings who do have a better understanding of what's going on, say, in Niagara Falls or Fortnery or uh, Wiki or, or Cambridge or, or Gunawagi or, or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So all these geographically far places can now meet. And we, we, we all have, uh, we have different issues that are plaguing our communities, but our root problems are pretty much all the same. You so know? do you think so the social we, media... Uh, the social media movements, I don't know more, Wetsu and uh, Students Against TMX. Um, do you th- do you, what do you think the impact of that has been? Uh, I think if, if nothing else, it's at least been out there for people to become aware, or at least teach themselves on what's going on and what the issue is. Um, there was a time where the citizenship of Canada and America could plead ignorance and not knowing. But with the social media and these these different groups on there, there's no longer that that ability to claim that you don't know. Yeah. 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 There's there's no you can't say that oh I didn't know anymore. That's no longer an excuse. You know, and I think that that's what's going to come now, especially with the with the children in the residential school with their binding and not on their properties. Yeah, I, I don't like the whole I didn't know excuse because you may have not have been explicitly told, you may not have known exactly where the bodies were, but if you were aware of the system or had any peripheral understanding uh, and you heard about what residential schools were in that entire process, either you didn't care enough to think laterally like, oh, what did that mean and how what actually happened to these kids, or you you know, I don't know what the other alternative is, but it's a it's a it's a it's a frustrating subject to for a lot of people to plead ignorance when they're very much aware that, you know, uh, there, there's indigenous communities here and, oh, it sucks what happened to the Indians. And that's sort of like, I don't know if it's pity or what it is, but I don't want their pity myself. I don't care about the every child matters thing in the way that maybe other people do, because I feel like that's just more pay, uh, pl- placating to settlers. Like, no, oh, maybe they'll listen now that they feel sorry for us. Like, I don't know if that's, I don't know if the whole, um, yeah. Do you see where I'm coming from, at least? I don't expect you to agree, and I know it's controversial. I know other indigenous people don't necessarily feel like me. I see the stuff. I went back to my res. I saw the stuff in the yard. If if I didn't go on my journey, I would definitely feel that way. In fact, I'd probably be holding a lot of hate in my heart because there's, uh, there's no excuse for what happened. Have there been cases of government censorship, suppression, restriction of indigenous movements? If you take a look at Gonestoa, is is the site that they have six by six, uh, the the free space at Landback where anybody can go there. So if they want to go support Landback and not get arrested, mm. they can go to the six by six. That's the old Gonestoa site from 2006. 
Now, during that during that time that they were out there, now, keep in mind that this is on the Canadian side of the imaginary line. But do you know who was all there? Because you had CSIS, you had OPP, RCMP, CIA, FBI, DEA, and Homeland Security. Because, again, we span a border. So Mohawk Territory is in Canada. Well, guess who's in America? The Senecas, the Cayugas, the Onondaga. But even even so, that being said, Homeland Security has a worry for land back. Because land back is now showing its face in non-reservations of the states. Oh, really? Yeah. So I don't know if you've seen on the 4th of July, they dropped a land back flag on an American flag. They dropped land back. And it was an upside down uh, American flag from a great elevator in in South Dakota. Then now, you can even see the the the, the indigenous in in New Zealand and Australia ran back. Well, and we've even seen uh, certain things being blocked or not being shared through social media. So yeah, no, I mean it, it's we see it all the time. And heck, look even uh, look at Standing Rock, for instance. How much airtime did that get on mass mass media? Well, it, got it got none. It got You know, so they don't want to. They don't want to take a look at it because they don't want to. They don't want to acknowledge it. And you know, although, you know, they use their media to upset people about Black Lives Matter and, and social, real social issues, but you have an issue where that's your drinking water. And they're quiet. Yeah. You know. So and again, that's why I can. That's why I can honestly, as much as I don't like Trump, I can honestly understand their argument about why they do, because they're not lying. Like the media does show what it wants to show. The only problem is these people that are complaining. They unfortunately have no reason to complain because they don't even know what suffering is yet. I try to warn people. I try to warn people. Like, if you don't want, you don't want certain things to happen to you. You need to pay attention to what what American Canada did to Native people and Black people, because once they've gotten everything from us, the only thing left to take, the only people left to take it from, is the white people. <laughs> so again, this is a corporate. Yeah. This is a corporate state. It has nothing to do with race. It has more to do with the exploitation, have, uh, right? Yeah, of the lowest exactly. man on the uh, on the rung, right? So. Or experience systematic barriers, violence, and also the potentials for technology in general. But like, lastly, before we get off of here, I want to know what do you want the future to look like? Future, I want, actually, I think uh, I think we're working towards that uh, with the land back movement. That's our people saying we want our we want our land so that we can grow as people too. Like that's that's our that's those are our birthrights. Those are the agreements we made. I think that as uh, as we educate, I think Canadians are realizing that yeah, we've been taken advantage of, and that something needs to be done. Um, I'm I'm hopeful that it'll happen, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Uh, again, these are fights that my grandparents and their grandparents have had. So I'm hoping. At the very least, that we can see somewhat of a change between our generation and my children's generation. 
I hope that my kids have half of what we have to have as much to fight for as we have to fight for now. Meaning that we've at least taken away some of those burdens for them. Because that native language doesn't have some form of Stockholm syndrome. You know, we're all basically under the care of our oppressor. So, you know, and, and to finish this conversation, since we're talking about democracy and social media, mm-hmm. uh, in my travels, I've, I've come to see, I hear a lot of people say, well, I'm not, I don't get political. Well, I tell them that it's your, your duty as a citizen to be political. Mm. And, and to be a minority in that system, you have no choice but to be political. Because a lot of the, the decisions that they make in those, those chambers affect us directly whether it be through education, justice, or, or housing. Yeah, man. You know, so we don't yeah, have a, we don't have the we don't have the luxury to say I don't want to be political. You don't that's not an option for us. Uh, if there's anything else you want to leave our audience with before we go, then uh, by all means uh, the floor is yours, sir. Uh, I would just say to your audience, uh, be more involved, pay attention to what's going on and uh, educate yourself on the treaties and who you are. Uh, Canadians as well as, as indigenous people are also treaty people as well because those agreements weren't just for us those were agreements for them to follow as well so wow. because yeah. again we were we were uh, people of of um, on the earth more so so there's 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 our ways our, our ways can help us with a lot of what's going on now and I think our ways are a lot uh whether there be a Haudenosaunee, uh, Anishinaabe, or, or Hellsuk, or whatever, Sioux, whatever, they all come back to a, a single creation, and the earth is our mother. And I think that's honestly what society needs the most. They need uh, to remember who their, uh, I, don't, I know I'm using this word, but who their true God is, and their true God is the is creation. You know, one hand washes the other, the, 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 the trees give us air, you know, it's a reciprocal uh, relationship. Cause I'm always humbled listening to you speak. And again, uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and ideas. And again, making some time for just participation. Anytime, man, anytime. I'm, I, I'm happy to share any information I got. Cause someday I will pass away. And when I'm gone, if I don't share it, it goes with me. And, when, and information and knowledge is something that's free, free to share. It doesn't cost you anything. Yeah. And more wise words from cuz. Our following guests are Panini Kantadari and Jesse Carson of Participedia's Design Technology Team. The team was established in 2015 by artist Amber Freed Jimenez, whose aim was to create an intentionally inclusive space and foster student mentorship in the design and development of the open source platform Participedia.net. We spoke to Pan and Jesse about what it has been like to work in a field marked by systematic gender, sex, and racial barriers. And they describe how feminist human-computer interaction theory can help overcome inequalities in design and technology. So excited to have you both here. Um, I'm really excited to dive in. And actually, I wanted one of our our questions sort of builds upon that um, feminist HCI theory. If you could speak a, a bit more about that and sort of just introduce that. Yeah. Um, so feminist HCI, uh, HCI stands for human computer interaction. And it's a practice of design, essentially of building technology that's rooted in feminist theory and values, essentially. So 
yeah, anything you can learn about feminism, um, it's got a long history. Uh, but we basically, what we really draw from feminism is is like an underlying belief in equity, diversity, and inclusion, and those and that those things are so important in all aspects of work. Um, not just the, the output at the end of the, you know, the technology that you build. Yes, that must be inclusive and we, we do our best, but also in the processes that we use to build that technology. So the team itself and how we're engaging with each other and how, we, how can we incorporate and live those values all the way through in sort of a holistic way. So that's kind of what we, we get from it. In your, both of your experiences, would you, are there any other lines of inclusion, um, sex, race, um, ability or disability where you've seen exclusion where there still needs to be more of a, of a push. I'm wondering if if you both have any ideas of how um, you know someone looking into you be like okay why does it matter if why do we need for example an LGBTQ uh, developer what does that impact the technology itself you know um, anyone can do this job sort of framework um, would you have any insights that maybe um, subvert that that idea, subvert that notion of why we need an equitable um, tech workforce? Um, I mean, it's, it's tech, is tech, you know, I think it, uh, to me, it's when you say equal, it's like anyone does it, it's the same thing. So I, I'm not really, I, I, I guess I'm not saying, hey, we should hire more women or we should hire LGBTQ. It's more like whoever can do the job or it's um, then everybody can advance the field I mean that make that does make sense like and I think hiring people who have the skills or finding people who want to have the skills and mentoring them to do the work is, is important and getting the work done in a good way is important but I guess like from our team's perspective and why we feel that it's important to have a team you know that's made up of women who have maybe some lived experience in dealing with discrimination for different reasons, race, gender, um, is to, because lived experience influences your output in a way. You know, it's like we can see things maybe that others might not notice um, in the process of, of doing the work. Like, you know, Amber, you know, noticed more than, even more than I did as a woman and as a leader of the team early on in phase one, that the, the technology that was being built while well, it was functional and it was good, and, but the team that was doing it was um, almost entirely men. And a lot of the men were from you know, the Northern hemisphere and that sort of thing. So it's like, we're building this technology that we wanna learn about things that are go going on globally, but are we you know, taking actions that are a little bit not open enough to, to do that in a good way? But, you know, and it's not, like that team was bad or they were exclusionary on purpose or anything like that, but they just didn't have a lot of women involved and they didn't, maybe because, maybe because they're not women, they didn't think to have more women. I don't know. It's a tough, tough thing to like speculate about. Um, and sometimes it's just like, well, you know, it's just the way that it's set up. Like they hired a firm to build the initial platform. Right. And so the way the firm works they didn't have the ability to make the tech open source because it's just not how they did business, right? And they didn't want to do it that way. So because of that, we, it was a, we, we tried to work with them and see, oh, maybe they can hire students and mentor students to build some of the code as well, but they just couldn't fit it into their business model. And it's not like that's a bad thing and it's totally okay to have a business model, but that's 
not the way we wanted to do the work of Participedia, which is supposed to be all about education and really empowering for students. So that's, you know, it's like making those shifts that, I don't know, and maybe Amber, you know, was the one who saw that, you know, and maybe we needed her to see that for everyone. And and now, and everyone's on board now, though, oh, well, that's fabulous. Like, this is a good team. Like, of course we should do it this way, but it needed somebody to step up and say it and actually make the changes. That's a great point you bring up. And I'm so glad you dive into open source data and um, privatize closed business models. Um, that's sort of the practical aspect of tech that I, I wanted to get some insight into after. Um, but as a preliminary question, um, for someone who might not have as much experience in tech, what, how would you best describe sort of what open source data is and what privatized closed models are with, with examples? Um, so open source is um, is when you build a software and you and everybody can access your source. Um, we are using GitHub as um, GitHub public repository um, as a way for people to access the source code. But in general, it just means um, a software that people can access the source code. So they can everybody can build on it. Everybody in the community um, who knows something about tech or want to change something could. Um, could make change to it. Um, we, we, well, the way our kind of open source work is that everybody can access the source, but in order to merge the change in, they'll have to kind of uh, make a pull request um, and we have to approve it. Um, however, they could make a copy of it, post it anywhere that's um, open source. And closed source is the opposite of that. So nobody can see or change your code unless you were given permission to. That's a great summary, thank you. Um, and then I guess from that, are there any tensions between, um, I don't wanna come out right out and say, okay, these are on opposite ends because they, they may not be, but are there any tensions between the two, I guess, models of, of code? Um, from the technical and business perspective, I don't think there are, it depends on how um, how your business model is, right? I mean, most of the companies who, um, who like for-profit company, then obviously most of them will not um, share that code just because it's proprietary and people can copy it. Um, so I don't think there's like attention and, and some, some for-profit company, like for example, Google has a lot of open source um, libraries that um, developers can use. So it depends on the situation. It's not like attention between them or yeah. It totally depends on the situation, absolutely. And and I think, you know, on the on the other side, on the like personnel side, on the team side of, t of tech development, there's the responsibility for making a safe space falls to whoever's on that team right so the the business you know they have an hr department and there's a there's channels for you know making sure that everyone is safe and and not being you know coming up against uh, barriers and challenges based on race or gender or anything like that so there's there's where the responsibility lies and even in the open source community that can cause problems as well right because there are less channels and recourse for people who might be facing issues of discrimination or, you know, harassment and the things happen online that are 
you know, can be unsafe and, and damaging for people. So it's actually a, a kind of goes, it, it permeates both sides of the thing. So there's a tension, but there's also like, yeah, everyone's facing these challenges, even the open source community. So it's not like this big savior. You have to make sure that you're, you're doing those things in a way that's inclusive too. That's a great consideration. Yeah, how open source can can even have some inequality as well. From this, I wanted to ask our larger theme for the season, as you both know, is technology and democracy. Um, and I'm trying to I'm trying to think of examples of how either open source or privatized closed models have been begun to be applied to to de democratic processes and. Um, inclusive practices. I can really, I can only think of more privatized closed models. Um, I think I think I'm thinking of like government and bureaucratic systems. Um, but are there ways that open source data is being used um, in participatory democracy as well? Mm, that's a good question. I'm trying to think of other examples. I'm not sure if this example uses open source tech or if their project is open source. It might be. Um, commonfair.net is one that I can think of. We wrote about it in our paper. Um, and they're kind of creating a space online that supports communities. Um, in, and they're even sort of inventing sort of a, a community um, funding system as well. And it's less, I guess it's less about the open source technology side. It's more like they're being, they're, they're being, generative you know they're being like they're actively trying to change things in the world and a lot of closed source projects probably do that too it's sort of that's that's the side I don't know for us the open source piece was really so we could get other people's hands in the code and like get students involved and that might not be as important a goal for other projects but who but who still do really important things to bolster democracy and to like facilitate community engagement so I don't know if it's like yeah I, I, I love open source I think it's great but I don't think it's like the solution that's going to solve all the problems it's like really about the people and what they're doing and you know even if it's not open source is the technology for good is it for social good or is it you know have other agendas um i think we have to kind of separate between the open source technology itself which is the code mm -hmm. and source data so mm -hmm. um i feel like as like the how participedia is built regardless of the the code that is being open source the data in there people could access it they can export it um and also for the fact that anyone could edit um an entry a case that already helps a lot with the democracy because like if you were to compare this to like government website it's a read only you don't have a say in it mm. but um with participedia everybody has a has has a say to what um like to to what they see and what what they experience so we built it in a way that if a person um puts something up as a case um anybody who disagrees with that could make a change or make a suggestion then that's kind of already democracy you know like hearing others voices so yeah totally such a good point and i guess yeah another example of that is wikipedia that's kind of where we got the name from right yeah. and, and they do use open source technology and both but but yeah a good point pan it's like 
and, and it's coming back again to this, like what's going on behind the scenes and the code and then what's going on on the front end, you know, the actual users and is the site itself democratic, you know, how engaging is it? Can people access the data? Um, they don't have to be a coder to do that, you know? That's a good point. That's a great point. I think it's interesting you bring up Wikipedia because I think, <clears throat> I feel as though there's been um, a, a recent cultural shift in where um, before it was it was heralded as, okay, you can't trust with the Wikipedia, you know, just anyone can go on and, and do anything and, and don't use it for research, where now I feel like there's a general shift where we're seeing the legitimate and really helpful tools and, and framework that Wikipedia um, popularizing where, again, anyone could go on, um, be verified as an editor, and, and really do that research and, and have all the footnotes at the bottom um, to really build such a huge website um, and, and foundation of information. Um, so I think, I think it's great that it's having a more ripple effects in, in how Pricetopedia is shaped as well. Yeah, for sure. And we're, we're definitely facing those same challenges with Participedia that Wikipedia is facing. And, and, you know, as research, as phase two of this project has grown the team, there's new people and there's researchers who are new to Participedia saying, hang on a minute, like your data is biased. What, how are we even supposed to use this? <laughs> and so that's like one of our big, our big pushes this, this, this first um, phase of, of phase two is to form an editorial board and really dial in our systems for um, ensuring that the entries that are being used in analysis for academic work, um, for policy change, all of those important things are really well cited and reviewed by a board and sort of approved. And so for Pan and I, that means a new technical challenge of do we need, you know, a verified entry system um, that shows which entries have been reviewed by the board on the site. Um, and then this kind of ethical or sort of philosophical challenge of, but wait, do we lock it? Is it now not open edit? whoa, hold on, take a step back. So we're in that like interesting um, space right now and conversations are happening among the team. And that's a really big part of our co-design work going forward. So stay tuned yeah. for that. <laughs> that's a, a great consideration and, and something, it brings in like the philosophical um, questions of, okay, how do we approach this um, and building off of that? I also, I wanted to latch on to, um, the phrase you used, or just the two words about um, coded, was it coded bias or, or biased data? Um, uh, yeah, the, the data being biased. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's, it can be often seen maybe from those who aren't in tech, you know, how can, how can data itself be biased? Isn't data just, you know, information? Don't you just enter that? Um, and I think there was a, a documentary on Netflix recently, I think it was called Coded Bias, where it mm. sort of talks about how um, you know, algorithms use a lot of data to input them, but it, it's a matter of, you know, who's picking that data and who's, all this, all this really cool stuff. But if, if you wanted to add on to um, sort of your perspective on how, or how can data be biased? Yeah, well, in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you talk about Google, so I think the code um bias for data is different than what Jesse just mentioned about. So um, we have, we are in like the age of machine learning and um, AI and in order to, so, so machine learning and AI is used to predict a result. And, and to do that, um, you basically teach 
the machine to think and, and to teach the machines, but you have to have a large set of data that um, tells the machine saying, okay, so when you see something like this, that's the result. And you have a million of this. And um, think about like the sample data being wrong or it's being answered in, um, in a way that so, so if yeah, you, or the example data is like all yeah. written by men, or it's a bunch of racist text, or like you know, there's a whole bunch of problematic and, things that can come up when it's not being looked at by human eyeballs. You know, they're just gathering it all up. Anyways, keep going, Pen. Yeah, then then those data are, are by us in in a sense of like um, Google or AI. But I think what Jesse was mentioning is the content of our website. Whoever wrote it could be by us. Exactly. It's, and it's a lot low, it's a lot less high tech bias for us. It's like, but it, you know, it's not even intentional. It's like, you know, uh, let's say yeah. a researcher who's interested in a particular country who writes a lot of entries about that country, but doesn't. And then there's a big, huge hole, you know, like there's, there's just, there's, yeah. yeah. And, and honestly, I definitely don't think it's intentional. Um, from my personal experience, for example, um, I'm, I originally from, came from Thailand and if you, were to be in Thailand and write something about Thailand is definitely different than being in Canada and look back mm. because like it could be the government does not really give you the whole picture or um, the access to information is different and or it's how you view your um, society compared to others. So there, mm. I think there will always be bias, um, but that's why we make the, the data kind of open source. So uh, when a lot of people are able to make the input to that same entries, it makes it less biased so that you see different point of views. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and then there's, you know, we do our best, you know, as researchers, there's a lot of smart people on this team, like amazing academics who have put a lot of time into developing the questions that we ask, you know, the, the data model itself, like all of these specific nuanced questions about what are democratic innovations and what do we want to know about them and why is that important? And that has to be reviewed, you know, and that's another thing that comes from feminism is like reflection, is looking at what we've done and, and just pausing, you know, taking a minute and looking back on all of that and saying, okay, how could we have done this better? Does this need to be more inclusive? Did we leave people out who should have been at the table like that? those steps and that you know over time reduces bias over time makes things a bit more inclusive or meets the goals that you want to meet in terms of a global um, knowledge production product um, I think I had another thing I wanted to say but now I forget so <laughs> hopefully it jumps back but this yeah <laughs> I like a lot where where we we'd gone and I think sort of coming back to um, the feminist theory that's at the center of of um, the practice it has been very, very insightful. I also, I wanted to ask in terms of um, larger implications of this, because um, I know there definitely has been large sources of data that have been coded with bias, um, and we have already bias within many systems. Um, what could be those those larger implications? How to, connecting it to, to movements and things that are happening in the world today? Well, there's, I mean, with Participedia, we're not at the stage where it's like big, we're not called big data. We're not big data right now, but we are 
so we have the kind of the luxury of being able to have human eyeballs on all the data that the team is going to analyze and review. But that's not to say that we are not moving into exploring AI and machine learning. And some of our team members are interested in those things. So some of the implications of those things are, you know, the findings can go into a policy brief that then influences policy change. And did the data come from a place where, you know, like, this is questionable. <laughs> so it's, it's always going to be so important to to have that discernment and awareness of the, the dangers of bias. And I think that's why we have one of our research clusters, you know, digital democracy. It's like, okay, how are we being critical about tech and, and in democracy and using AI for these types of things that can have big picture impact on the world and change the way governments work based on data that, you know, may or may not have been thoroughly vetted for issues like bias. So yeah, I mean, it has potential for major, major impact, but it's it, we'll sort of see what happens i mean yeah if it's in the hands of the right people it, but oftentimes it's not and the people who are building the most you know forward thinking tech are cor large corporations you know who are firing their women researchers for calling out these very issues like uh it, you know google fired is it kimnet kimnet gibru who was fired for writing papers about issues and bias um, in AI. So I don't know, I mean, whose hands is it in? That's always gonna go. <laughs> What's the motivation? So hopefully being part of an, you know, an academic project who's, you know, research funding um, and not, you know, capitalist agendas helps. <laughs> and it brings up a, a great um, consideration about a barrier or a problem within tech and democracy not being, completely just the tech itself, but the motivations and, and the individuals behind it, uh, whose hands it is in, whose hands it's in, uh, a great phrase. Who, who do we trust? Yeah. Because I don't know if I, I mean, government at this point, it's hard to trust with <laughs> all of the chaos, but um, we do our best. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, yeah, technology is, um, it's itself is like just a small thing of, that is a tool that helps um, the people behind it. Um, so yeah, I think the government is able, I mean, we are not sure if the government could be trusted, but at the same time, I don't think any of the citizens see the whole picture of anything either. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's like a puzzle, you know, kind of have to put everything together and yeah. It's a big data problem. There's too much data. <laughs> we can't know everything. Yeah. yeah. And uh, from the last interview with, with Dr. Bunny, he called tech a double-edged sword. And from this one, I'm getting more than a tool um, that can be wielded by any number of hands. Um, so it's, it's great to see different interpretations of how technology can intersect with, with democracy, especially from um, a practical standpoint of two um, researchers, coders, developers. And I guess I just want to ask if, was there any final thing you wanted to share, anything that was just on your mind that just popped up um, during this discussion? I would love to see everyone visit participedia.net and let us know what you think, because that's a big part of it too. Who's looking at this? What, are we meeting your needs? Tell us, we can email info at participedia.net or use the feedback button on the site to shoot us a note. Our final guest for this episode is Dr. Bonnie Ibawa. 
Dr. Ibawa is the director of the McMaster Center for Human Rights and Restorative Justice, the project director of the Confronting Atrocity Project, and the project director of Participedia. He currently chairs the United Nations Expert Mechanism on the Right to Development and was recently inducted into the Royal Society of Canada. Our conversation centers on the possibilities and tensions of technology and democracy, drawing on his years of personal and research experience. The first thing I wanted to ask was just generally, um, within your realm of research, expertise, um, how do you see technology and democracy interacting? And on top of that, sort of what challenges have you seen come from this? Yeah, so technology for democracy, I think, is a double-edged sword, if I can put it that way. So on the one hand, we see how technology, particularly in the forms of digital communication and social media, has been so effectively mobilized by marginalized groups uh, to demand a voice uh, in governance, uh, but also to generally you know, pass their message uh, across. It has brought the community together. Uh, it has made uh, a global village even more connected. Uh, and all of these enhanced democracy, giving citizens a voice, and bringing people that would ordinarily maybe not have the opportunity to work and collaborate together. Technology is providing all that new resources that can facilitate uh, interaction, collaboration, civic engagement, uh, both within the context of local communities, national communities, but also in the context of uh, international communities. On the other hand, however, we also increasingly see how technology, the same technology is being deployed by authoritarian forces to repress uh, participation, to restrict uh, civic engagement, uh, to repress and to exclude uh, we see this in the use of surveillance technology, for instance, which many governments are deploying now uh, to kind of surveil citizens. Uh, we see this in the ways that technology have been used uh, to find, you know, anti-immigrant sentiments, xenophobia, uh, populist nationalism. Uh, so in some ways, technology it's what you make of it. I mean, I think that has already always been the historical truth, whether it's the age of the telegram or the age of the telephone or the age of the television. Yeah. It's what humans make of the technology. And, and we see that definitely with the digital revolution, that there are those who are appropriating it to advance the cause of human rights and inclusion and equity and justice. But on the other hand, there are also others that would use the same technology to exclude and to repress. And, and I like what you've given us a, a good overview, especially on the international scale of, of both sides of technology and democracy. And I wanted to hang on to one thread that you mentioned um, about that giving a voice to marginalized or historically excluded communities. Um, I, I do understand that you've done some research um, onto a mobile polling platform, um, Voto, through Participedia. Um, if you wanted to, to, I guess, give the context to, to what your research um, in that reign uh, was. Yeah. 
That's a good one because uh, that's uh, Participedia is essentially about trying to map how local people are demanding a voice in how they're governed. And that's really the beauty of Participedia, that it is crowdsourced. It is uh, trying to capture evolving civic engagement initiative and voter mobile, which is this initiative of uh, a mobile phone based, you know, pooling and crowdsourcing in Ghana provides us with uh, an excellent example of how technology is driving uh, popular participation. So in this case, uh, it's, a, it's a phone based, basic, very basic uh, phone based uh, platform uh, developed uh, by communities in collaborations with partners, uh, technical partners, and it allows them to monitor uh, elections, to pool, um, and there's so much potential in, in what these technology can do. Uh, and in the context in which uh, voter mobile is being used in Ghana, it's really interesting because as they say, um, Africa, like many developing countries, have been able to bridge a major digital divide uh, because of mobile technology. So traditionally, uh, telecommunications required a whole lot of infrastructures. If we're going to create a phone line, for instance, you have to put down the cables and all of that. Uh, what digital technology has done, particularly the mobile phones, is that it has allowed uh, developing countries to kind of skip that infrastructure heavy phase of communications. And so you're finding in Africa that there is wide use of cell phones. And, and that's what uh, the Voter Mobile Initiative has tapped on to use you know, basic handheld devices that many people in Ghana and across Africa now have access to. Uh, to pull uh, communities and to get them more involved in, in how they're governed. And we see the same thing in Kenya. I know about of several cases where, uh, you know, mobile phone-based apps or other forms of uh, digital technologies being used for pooling purposes and to get citizens more engaged, either in electoral democratic processes or just you know, be engaged in how they're governed in the issues that affect their lives. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was, it was super interesting how it was the mobile technology, you know, phone, something portable and, and brought, you know, everywhere that's really been tapped to in this case with Ghana. Because um, I feel as though sometimes when we think about technology and democracy here in the Western context, um, especially with something as um, I feel sought after as online voting, we think, you know, desktops, laptops. And um, so I think, as you said, they almost jumped a step and went right to, right to phones. Um, and, and a lot of the benefits with Voto is, you know, nurturing that participation and, and governance. Um, but at the end of the article did say, they brought up some interesting challenges. And I think I saw a quote that kind of stuck with me about um, how technology has the capacity to uh, concentrate power and can reinforce existing power relations. And I wanted to say, I wanted to ask, what, to what degree do you believe that that could happen, um, especially in terms of, of online polling? In, in yes, I, I agree with you definitely, because 
while technology has all these uh, impacts, these great impacts that we're talking about, uh, there's still a technological divide. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we see it particularly in this uh, pandemic period where, you know, everyone had to kind of distance learning and virtual learning. Um, it was quite evident that there is the reality of the technological divide, even in the industrialized West, for instance, in my courses, even here at uh, the university, there were students who emailed me and said, well, I I can't attend all the classes because I don't have unlimited, uh, you know, bandwidth, I don't have unlimited internet, uh, so I might have to phone in sometimes uh, to join the classes. So, uh, this raises so much equity issues, and the same is true, or perhaps even more so, in a developing country like, say, Ghana, where, yes, there is uh, growing access to technology, but that divide still exists. So, for instance, uh, if you talk about um, web-based technology that, for instance, uh, rely on apps, Uh, you have to have a particular kind of phone to be able to use an app. (laughs) So you have to have a smartphone. And and very many people in the developing world do not have a star smartphone. Uh, They do have phones, uh, but they're not smartphones. They won't work with apps. They will work with text messages. They will work with some basic form of digital communication, but not with apps. So and so if you say, well, we want to develop an app that will kind of aggregate, you know, ideas in rural communities, <laughs> I think the first question you're going to ask is, okay, one, how many people have smartphones that can, you know, access apps? And two, is there enough bandwidth to even begin to talk about using app? And what other ways can we draw on digital technology that is more inclusive. Yeah, I'm really glad we've gone in this direction because it goes sort of right back into the realm of of human rights work. Um, And, you know, one potential problem with technology technology and democracy being, okay, if if we want to rely on it so much, should this be a human right? and I, yes, I, yeah, yes, yeah. That it, should, it should be a human right. If, if it's going to be the place we go to assess information, to determine who is counted and who is not, uh, it becomes a human rights issue. And it's already been discussed in that context, access to the internet as a human right. Yeah. Uh, because so much is connected to it, you know, to book a COVID vaccine test, you have to have access, it's done online. Uh, to attend lectures, you have to do that online. Uh, to book a doctor's appointment, you have to do that online. And increasingly, we're beginning to see uh, that that's often the only way to do it. Yeah. And so it's not just a luxury anymore that you know I have to have access to these technology. It's almost a basic necessity of life. Uh, but there are also skeptics who say, well, we have to keep human rights basic, you know, we can make internet a human rights, but we've had these arguments before within human rights scholarship, even those who argue that health and education shouldn't be a human rights, but you, they, they would rather have you limit human rights to the most basic human rights, uh, you know, a right to life, you know, freedom from torture, you know, and all of that. The, the question that I ask those people is what is basic, you know, 
And I would argue that in some ways, uh, digital assets today uh, is basic, is a basic requirement. That's how you function in society. So we should think about digital assets in terms of human rights, I think. And, and Uncle Bunny, I also wanted to highlight your role as chair of the UN expert mechanism on the right to development and sort of filter in this question of how might the UN or these international bodies be addressing or not addressing um, these roles and challenges of, of technology integrating itself as a human right? Yeah, good question. So uh, my role at the, at the UN, I'm, I'm, I chair the expert mechanism on the right to development. So uh, the expert mechanism in the United Nations is a body of experts that work with the UN to promote specific human rights goals. And in my case, my mandate is to help the UN promote uh, the right to development as an independent expert. And the right to development basically is an all-encompassing right that states that uh, people have an inalienable right, that is an undeniable right, uh, to be part of how matters affecting them and, and their development and their well-being are determined. Uh, and it's a broad spectrum of rights that spans from education to health, uh, to self-determination, to access to economic resources. They are more social and, orient social and economic oriented rights, but they also have a civil and political rights component to it. Okay. But to go back to the question of digital um, assets and the benefits of digital technology, I think international organizations have an important role to play in ensuring equity and equal assets. Uh, one of the things that the COVID pandemic has really, really brought to light is the gaping disparities and inequalities uh, within and between nations. And you can see it in terms of who's getting access to vaccines and who's not. And the same is true of digital assets and access to basic digital technology, that there is a divide within and between nations. And, and what the international organizations like the UN has been trying to do is to address uh, both of them, both these global disparities uh, in such a way that are more equitable, uh, but also holding uh, countries uh, up to their obligations to bridge the digital divide within their countries. Because these, like I said before, uh, are equity issues, digital technology, uh, it's not just a nice to have at this stage, it is a must have to yeah. function in our world. So uh, increasingly we are beginning to see the human rights language uh, being applied to questions of equity and access to digital technology and also bridging the digital divide. Wow, wow. that's really interesting to hear. Uh, I wanted to sort of step into that because I feel like often you know, the UN seems like such a huge organization and, and international cooperation in, in bridging uh, really big topics like digital divide can seem just so insurmountable. Um, if you were to break it down and, and think of any um, particular examples or particular cases that you've worked on or you've heard of um, within the UN that you were like, oh, this, this really promoted this, this positive thing or, oh, this could use a little work. Uh, would you have any examples like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the ones that uh, relates more directly to the right to development 
is uh, just in terms of uh, technology access to internet technology. Um, and uh, this is something that uh, the UN has been involved in, in trying to share uh, international support, uh, both in terms of, you know, donor support, but also in terms of working with international agencies, uh, such as the World Trade Organization, such as the International Monetary Fund, uh, and of course also the World Bank, uh, to provide uh, particularly least developing countries. So in the UN, we have various categories. You have the developed countries, the developing countries, and there's a category called the least developing countries, and those are the countries uh, that using social and economic indices are uh, uh, rather at the bottom of the development index. Uh, but providing those countries with the resources uh, and the support to build digital infrastructure. Uh, very often the emphasis is on uh, just providing basic resources like food, like shelter, like water. And that's important. I mean, for those who are most deprived, these will continue to be the most basic necessities. But what the UN is also pushing for is that, you know, we also need to pay attention to how digital divide facilitates every other thing. Uh, that they, and I'll give you a classic example. If farmers, for instance, have access uh, to meteorological information on their handheld device that tells them, you know, what the weather is going to be like for the next one week, when it will be good to plant and when not to plant, when to harvest. That obviously has a bearing on food production. Yeah. Uh, so you see that we, often we don't make that connection. And I hear very often people say, oh, well, the digital divide and, you know, internet, that's a luxury. We shouldn't be focusing on that. And I keep saying, well, in the world we live in today, you can divorce them. If you're really interested in increasing food production in Kenya, it doesn't make sense not to pay some attention to farmers having access to internet. Even something as basic as international prices of food, of the food they produce, uh, because I, I gave an example of uh, a case in Kenya where local uh, producers of tea and coffee were being shortchanged by middlemen who were offering them prices much, much less than the international market uh, prices. And so these farmers got together in a cooperative and said, well, we know what the international market prices are. We've seen yeah. it here. It is on the internet. We know how much you're getting. We know what your cut is. And we demand that, um, you know, we get a fair price. We get a fair part of that price. I mean, that's just an example of the power of digital technology, even at a subsistence level. So we must begin to think about technology and access to information, not as some luxury as it might have been 20, 30 years ago, but as really fundamental to the other questions that we try to address. Yeah, that's that's a great point that, that one of the issues with tech and democracy could be how we perceive it and how much of a necessity we perceive it as, especially with, um, I, I think, in terms of agricultural trade liberalization as well. I know the World Trade Organization had the Doha round in the early yes. 2000s that was never completed. And that was yeah. the, the effort of that was to essentially get 
these developing countries to be able to have, be on the same level in terms of their agriculture heavy based economies and it was yeah. never completed um, but then you mentioned how um, you know these farmers can have some sort of agency themselves in, in checking and comparing food prices and, and not mm -hmm. being shortchanged so I think yeah just like the approach of how much of a necessity it is and not just a luxury is yeah yeah, it's an unfortunate um, issue there. Yeah. Yeah. And we live in a globalizing world now. And this is the other thing that Participedia is really interested in, uh, that you know, very often we talk about North-South connection, but also that's increasing emphasis now on what's called South-South learning, mm. uh, how our farmers in the South learning from each other. So uh, with internet technology, uh, with uh, WhatsApp groups, uh, farmers in Ghana and farmers in Syria alone can compare notes, you know, okay. how are you dealing with, you know, the rains and, you know, the limited rains and harvest today. And, and those can say, well, this is what we're doing and this is what's working and this is what's not working. So if those are examples of how, you know, digital technology uh, can be useful in really bridging that gap and also fostering South-South cooperation so that people who are in the same boat basically don't have to reinvent the wheel when they're trying to find solutions to local problem. They can draw on the resources around them that others have uh, you know, attempted and found successful uh, to build them. So there, there is uh, a limitless possibilities for how digital technology can really enhance the lives of ordinary people in ways that we often don't realize. Shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to inquire um, about some problems in another uses of technology, um, two ways. The first one I want to talk about was sort of, um, you know, who's gonna be delivering this uh, technology? It'll be companies and these companies are often or can be private companies. Um, and I wanted to ask about what issues you foresee with that. Um, and then we'll counterweight it with issues that, which might be with state um, production and, and state um, delivery as well. Yeah, I mean, technology is driven by corporations, by private initiative, and there will always be the role of um, innovation and private capital in, in driving technology. I mean, that has historically been true. The internet and all the wonderful, you know, digital technological innovations we enjoy today have come about because of that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, you know driven, of course, by private capital. Uh, but one of the things we also emphasize is that it's not enough uh, to leave uh, private capital and industries alone to do this. Uh, the state has to intervene to enhance equity uh, because, you know, entrepreneurship will always be driven by profits. I mean, that's that's... Uh, you know, companies do charity and humanitarian work every once in a while, but the ultimate goal is to make profits for their shareholders, and that's going to always build the driver. And I think that is where the state comes in. That's where the government comes in uh, to ensure that uh, technology uh, is is driven in such a way that that access is guaranteed. Some level of access is guaranteed. Interesting. I feel like there's also there's been many contemporary examples of state intervention um, within these tech giants. The one that jumps to my mind was is the U.S. based company Facebook um, yes. speaking to I believe it was the Senate 
uh, like the GOP, one of the big legislative bodies, um, just to be held accountable in terms yes. of um, their election practices. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, that's a good example of why we can't just say, uh, well, let the companies take care of it. You know, uh, there has to be someone looking out for the public, for the people. And that's what I elected representatives um, should be doing. And I think Europe has done a better job of this than, you know, North America. Europe seems to be uh, the vanguard of trying to rein in the excesses of uh, technology companies. Was, was there anything else that you wanted to bring up or anything else that you wanted to mention? Yeah, I, I wanted to just end by saying this is a wonderful idea. I think it's a great thing you are starting with technology because that is one of the things Participedia has been grappling with because we, as you know, Participedia is crowdsourced. You know, we rely on people to provide this information. Okay. So it's also, uh, we have a moral obligation to make the information accessible uh, to those who help us, the content providers, uh, the content contributors. So one of the things we've been grappling with with Participedia is how do we do that? So something as simple as making sure that our website is mobile friendly, uh, because as you know, in many parts of the developing world, people can only access the internet through their phones. They don't have the luxury of, you know, desktops and iPads and all of that. So we have been working really hard to make sure uh, that uh, our website, our platforms, uh, all these resources we're investing in technology and we have a great, great uh, design and tech team. Um, but they pay attention to accessibility and not just uh, the format, but also in terms of disability that uh, we make our platforms accessible to people around the world as much as we can. So in some ways, uh, paying attention to digital technology and to technology generally is really central uh, to what we do. And it's a key determinant of the success or failure of so many of our projects and initiatives. So it's a great thing we have in this conversation. And that will conclude this episode of Just Participation today. We would like to thank our guests for sharing their time as well as the production team, Adiola, Nadine, Tim, and Zena, and Participedia for whom makes this work possible. If you found this episode worth listening to, please share it and subscribe. Until next time, miigwech.